0: And welcome to another episode of the Design Freaks podcast, where we talk about music industry, art, and design. Um, yeah, record covers, posters, flyers. Every time I say flyers, it's with a southern accent. Now I can't stop. Basically all kinds of fun and weird graphic design. I'm Clarita, and I am your host. And it's a new year. I can say it. It's still January. Happy New Year. Year of the Tiger. Meow. Um, This is episode 45 with Marcus Wilson, a.k.a. Ursula Android, Connie Merlot, and others. Marcus is a Seattle-based musician, artist, designer, performer, producer of shows, and overall aesthetics mastermind. Um, And comedian. This interview is so fun and funny, I just cracked up while I was editing. It's really great. You're going to love it. Um, But first I wanted to say thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with other vinyl and design freaks and leave a review and subscribe wherever you found me. Um, I have a lot more to come, lots more fun interviews coming up in the new year. And you can find everything at designfreakspodcast.com. You can contact me there. You can buy some merch. You can donate. And speaking of, thank you to Keith Brogdon for the donation. I failed to mention that in December. Keith is part of an acronym called TOLD, T-O-L-D, Thinking Out Loud Design. Very cool. Thank you. And for more music-related podcasts, and if you'd like to sponsor the show, check out RuinousMedia.com. And now, fasten your seatbelts, get put on some kind of Gallagher shield. It's a wild ride, folks. Enjoy. Let's party.
1: Hello. Hello. Marcus.
0: How are you? Hi. Uh,
1: I'm well. How are you, Clarita?
0: I'm doing okay. Um, is it too late to say Happy New Year?
1: It's never too late to say Happy New Year.
0: Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you. And um, and thank your cats as well.
0: Ah, and thank your cats. <laughs> I, I wanted to see if you would do like a little introduction.
1: Um, well, my name is Marcus Wilson, and mm-hmm. I'm a Seattle-based... Uh, Visual artist, designer, performer, um, and I've been working in the Seattle area for 25 years now in various media, uh, painting, collage, drag, performance art, uh, singing in bands, DJing, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. I'm a Sagittarius, and I, I think that's supposed to be a a Sagittarian thing, sort of a a dabbler in, in a lot of different things.
0: Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. You seem so nice. (laughs) (laughs) You don't seem evil. Um,
1: (laughs) I think Scorpio males are actually the evilest, but, um, Even though I'm a Sagittarius sun sign, like my moon and my rising, I think, are both Scorpios.
0: Ooh, Well, I'm an Aries, so I'm also fire. So (laughs) I totally get it. I get the bad reputation as well. (laughs) I moved here in 98. I can't remember when. When did you move to Seattle?
1: I moved here in 96.
0: Okay, so if we go back in time, um, the first time I became aware of you as it was uh, Ursula Android um, was that Sit and Spin yay and,
1: yeah
0: and I I lived across the street from it so that was my laundromat and it was like my coffee shop and I hung out there and a lot of people like I've told I've told stories about Sit and Spin on the show before but I just love talking about it because it was such a weird it unique was place
1: such a magical place and um, yeah they're was definitely nothing else like it and um certainly hasn't been anything remotely like it since i mean I, I i guess the place with the closest energy in seattle for me to sit and spin probably would have been like rebar um except for the fact that on on top of being like a really fun club like rebar wasn't also a Laundry mat and a pizzeria. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, that place was so great. And uh, the staff there was so wonderful. And so
0: good. Lacey worked there.
1: Nikki sugar worked there. Um, Yeah, yeah, a lot of great people.
0: (laughs) That creepy Alice in Wonderland painting.
1: Mm -hmm. And I once dropped an envelope filled with, I think almost $2,000 in door money on the floor there. And, uh, they just called me laughing the next day. Like the janitor had found it and they just like gave it all back to me. Oh
0: my gosh. Let's pour some out for the sit and spin Uh in memoriam. Um, yeah. So I saw you perform babies. <laughs> the first time I saw you, and I was like, I do not regret moving here now.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, okay. You performed as... So that was a phobang, right? So phobang was the event, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. Phobang started in February of 2000. That was at a dearly departed, amazing, strange place called Foxes, uh, which was a drag bar on Capitol Hill. And uh, we did Fobang at Fox's every Thursday night for exactly one year. And um, <clears throat> we showed up, I think it was to do our one year anniversary uh, edition of Phobang, And we got to Fox's and there were chains on the doors and we looked inside oh. and uh, all the liquor was gone and the sound system had been taking a- taken out and the uh, the owners of the club had fled the state in the middle of the night. <gasps> and um, wow. wah, wah, wah. that was the end of the first incarnation at, of Phobang uh, at Fox's. And, uh, and when we first started Phobang, the reason why we did it at Fox's wasn't necessarily because we thought that would be the perfect place for it. Uh, although it it did end up being so, but it was just because no one else was interested in <laughs> in allowing us to do what we were doing and um my uh my partner in crime uh Jackie hell and then my boyfriend at the time uh who was our d j you know we just wanted to throw a party uh that was equal parts drag show, uh, punk rock, live show and a dance party. And uh, getting any club, gay or straight or in between or neither, to bite onto that idea in 1999 Uh was impossible. And uh, those three things, the dance party, rock show and drag show, like people thought those were three great tastes that did not taste great together. And, <laughs> and, um, nobody wanted to go there with us.
0: I would like to also add a sprinkle of horror.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. To it, And, um, but, uh, you know, Foxes wasn't doing very well and they had a lot of empty dates on their calendar and, um, we were already regulars there. Um, and so they were just like, sure what the hell and they had very low expectations and uh, the first Thursday that we did pho bang, I would say probably, you know, 25 or 30 people showed up and you know, we just had the, the best time and by the next Thursday there was a line out the door all the way all of down all the way down to City Market of of people oh, trying to get in and it pretty much <clears throat> instantly <laughs> uh after that first week, I mean Thursday night was the night to go out and uh I can't tell you how many nine to fivers told me <laughs> that they lost their jobs because they could never make it to work on Fridays because of phobang. Oh my god. Yeah, so we did the show at Fox's for exactly a year, and then it closed. And then we didn't really know what we were going to do, um, because I think we thought we were still in that position of of no no legitimate club wanting us. But that turned out not to be the case. And uh, most of the clubs in town reached out to us about moving... Graceland, I think, is what El Corazon oh, yeah. was called back then. And then uh-huh. a couple other clubs, uh, Rebar. But uh, Sit and Spin reached out to us, and they definitely seemed like the best fit for us. So we, mov- we moved it to Sit and Spin. Mm-hmm. But I had promised the owners of Rebar... Uh, Rebar was still a tavern at the time. And um, this was in the early thousands, that's when the tavern laws in Seattle really started to change and more and more clubs could start serving hard liquor. It's, it's a long, boring story, but, but rebar was still a tavern and could only serve beer and wine. And and that was my caveat with rebar. I, I said, you know, if you ever get hard liquor, I'll move my show to your bar. And, <laughs> uh, and so we did foaming for about a year at sit and spin. And then rebar finally got hard liquor and i i felt honor bound to to move the show to rebar but in retrospect i kind of wish we had stayed at sit and spin
0: but they didn't stay open much longer did they
1: no no after that yeah but
0: but um yeah those tavern laws were weird i remember taking shots of port at the comet
1: (laughs) yeah so weird so gross Yeah. And when I first moved here in 96, uh, you know, you still had a certain portion of your sales uh, had to be food to be able to serve hard liquor. And so there weren't a lot of places uh, outside of sit down restaurants. There weren't a lot of bars that could serve uh, hard liquor. Mm -hmm. And. um, Uh, one of the places you know you could get booze was neighbors the reason why neighbors could serve hard liquor back in the day is (laughs) they had this like horrifying buffet out in the nightclub and your cover charge was supposedly to pay for the buffet and um (laughs) uh it was referred to by many as the Hepatitis Buffet, um, because... What,
0: what was in it? What?
1: Oh, there was, like, macaroni and cheese with hot dogs in it and um, <laughs> casseroles, and um, and this was just sitting out, like, near the dance floor in this smoke-filled gay dance club, and people would literally put their cigarettes out in the buffet, <laughs> And one one night towards the end of the night they had taken all of the uh they had taken all, all of the food items out of the buffet, but the buffet itself was still sitting there. And I was I was at neighbors in drag and I was wearing this uh sort of burnt orange uh fake fur coat. And I was dancing on the dance floor and I got hot and I threw my coat on the buffet, but the buffet was still filled with water that yeah. that was underneath it. And, and my coat absorbed all of the water and um, <laughs> it weighed about a hundred pounds. And I, I had to, I just had to drag it out of the club at the end of the night, leaving this trail of buffet water behind me. It was A, a really classy episode.
0: Oh my god, buffet water. Yuck.
1: Boxy Boxy
0: Boxy God, I don't ever remember. I used to go there on Thursday nights.
1: Thursday nights. I New Wave Night.
0: New Wave Night. And I do not remember a buffet, but I usually went there after something. So <laughs> probably after the comet, taking shots of port, and then go to neighbor's. <laughs> and I remember other places having like a fake wink-wink food menu that they're mm-hmm. like, not really, don't, don't order anything.
1: Yeah, um, what those laws really um, championed more than anything else, in my opinion, was just a lot of Really horrible, horrible food in in Seattle bars and restaurants because so many places would have a full kitchen just so that they could serve hard liquor, mm-hmm. um, but but they were definitely putting you know the least love and the least work possible into their kitchen. You know, oh um, yeah,
0: they're definitely going and getting Costco hot dogs if you're lucky. Let's take a trip back in time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to go back and go. <laughs> you're, you're, tiny little Marcus. Mm-hmm. You're growing up. You're growing up in Arizona, correct?
1: Yeah, we moved to Arizona when I was about five or six. Uh, I was born in Munich, Germany, because my dad was in the service. And then after that, we were stationed in Kentucky and, uh, after that, my mom got sick of being an army wife and, and, uh, moving around and she wanted to move back to Phoenix, unfortunately, um, which is where she <laughs> had grown up and where her family was. So, so yeah, that's how I ended up in Phoenix.
0: And okay. I want to know how that was like, did that affect your aesthetics? How did you get into art? What's your like? What's the origin story behind creativity for you in Phoenix?
1: Well, I think a lot of it was in the summertime. You know, it was literally, it was too hot to go out and play. And so I was, you know, inside all the time. And, you know, you can only watch so much television. And I think that's what really led me to you know indoor activities like arts and crafts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then when I was about 12 years old we uh we moved to uh a new house and there was a, a boy who lived across the street my age and we became best friends and his parents were this like really fantastic like intellectual artist couple and Mm. they saw something in me and you know they bought me my first paint and canvases and really really encouraged me to write and um they were so funny they uh when my best friend their son would be like playing sports with other kids in the neighborhood they Uh, they could tell how disinterested I was and they would be like, (laughs) why don't you come watch a movie with us? And, you know, I was like 12 and they they would show me Eraserhead or like (gasps) the Wicker Man. And, um, uh, yeah, they were really great. And, uh, when I was about 13, they took us to Tucson and, um, We went and saw the performance artist karen finley and um this is when she was like stripping nude and crap cracking eggs all over her body and covering herself with glitter and then having sex with a sweet potato um or rather a yam i'm sorry but so (laughs) they they exposed me to so much um at at a really great age and um
0: boy did they
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then around the same time in junior high, uh, I broke my leg playing soccer in P.E. And uh, there was a, a real silver lining to that because not only <clears throat> did I not have to be in P.E. for the rest of that year, uh, instead, I was a library assistant during that mm-hmm. period And uh, there wasn't a whole lot for me to do. And there was a photocopier in the library. And I spent most of my time just playing around with the photocopier and, you know, enlarging and playing with images from like reference books and magazines and all sorts of stuff and started making collages and... um. And I, I think that's really where my love of of collage, like, really, really began, mm. and graphic art. It's definitely that old cliche that kids will, I guess, sort of, oftentimes, grow up to be the opposite of what their parents want, mm. or um, because my parents at the time were quite conservative, not super religious, but mm-hmm. but just very modest and conservative and um not not really into anything too like ostentatious or eccentric or weird yeah. and um and so yeah my best friend you know his his parents were were just the complete opposite i mean they were my parents thought of them as hippies but um <laughs> they they weren't hippies though they yeah. they were much more like kind of bohemian intellectuals and like, whereas then their own son, my, my best friend at the time, you know, was raised by these like artists and, you know, extreme Mm -hmm. liberals. And, um, you know, he grew up to be a cop.
0: Okay. Family switch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's the first record cover that mesmerized you that you remember?
1: So my, my parents, uh, were not very musical people like they music didn't really seem to mean a lot to them. So they had a pretty small record collection and it was mostly easy listening and some soundtracks and (laughs) that was mostly my mother. My dad was also, was even less into music or, or buying records than my mom. And he, uh, what few records he did have were also mostly easy listening. And, um, he was in the military and he actually owned several albums of, uh, army marching, like literally recorded (laughs) albums of soldiers marching and their commanders cadences and orders to them so relaxing but um and so as as far as the album cover art goes it was it was all really really not very imaginative because you know it was mostly just these uh albums that would have the artist on the cover um very straightforward but my mom was really into barbara streisand and you know most of barbara's albums are very straightforward and you know just a a photograph of uh, Lesley Streisand herself, but hmm. um, she had this one album that she put out in the seventies called Butterfly, hmm. and uh, and I would be flipping through my mom's records, and the cover of Butterfly always stopped me because it was uh, the cover of the album was a photograph of a stick of butter with a housefly. That had landed on it get it (laughs) and you know it's such a corny pun and you know such a silly visual joke but it really blew my mind like i didn't know that you could put anything on a record cover other than i'm looking at it a photograph of the artist and you know as as goofy as it is um it was in a way it was kind of my introduction to like pop art and then the back cover was really crazy, too. It was this very psychedelic painting of Barbara Streisand. And her, her hair is, from what I remember, is all rainbow and it's spinning yeah. out into, like, oh butterflies. Yeah. And so both the front cover and the back cover really kind of blew my mind at the time and really like open this door that, to me that like an, an album cover, you know, could be more than, than just a, a standard photo of, of the band or the singer or whatever.
0: Do you think, do you think the butter with the fly on it is a painting or is that a photo? I can't tell.
1: You know, I haven't taken a look at it in a while, but uh, I think it's a photo.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. Good art direction. I like um, the simplicity of it. And it's interesting that she doesn't use her last name on this record. It's Barbara. And that painting is crazy.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that, that was definitely the, the first album cover that that made me really think about you know about that medium being able to be really used as as an actual art medium the next record cover that I can think of that that really really struck me was probably Rio by Duran Duran Mm, and oh yeah um you know it just pushed so many buttons for me and you know i having grown up in the 70s at the time i i really hated 70s aesthetics um and you know everything was brown and macrame and troll dolls and shag carpet and you know lots of things that i have an appreciation <laughs> for now but but i hated them <laughs> as a kid and um and that that cover you know with the nagel painting um mm-hmm. it it just I mean, it really did just represent the 80s and, you know, the slickness of it and artificiality. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems so European and futuristic. Um,
0: Yeah, I thought it was so cool. And the way, so it's designed by Malcolm Garrett, who did all the Buzzcocks design. mm -hmm. And I loved how he paired typography with the Nagel artwork and made it just look so seamless.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, he was so good at that. And um, I feel like
1: it's a great example of a record that sounds like what the cover looks like. Yes. I, I love it when a record can do that. And another record that comes to mind that, that does that for me is the album The Sky's Gone Out by Bauhaus. When I was about, I, I guess, fifteen or sixteen, I, I went to this really great record store in Phoenix called Stinkweeds, um, and I saw the cover of the CD of the "The Skies Going Out" by Bauhaus, and and I had heard of the band. I you know I'd seen some people you know punks in Phoenix like on the bus or whatever wearing Bauhaus T-shirts, but I'd never heard their music. And the the cover of that record just was so intriguing and so unlike anything I'd re- really ever seen before. And so I just bought the CD based on the cover and I, I just could not stop staring at it. And you know, I got home and I and I put the CD on and it just the opening track, their insane uh-huh. cover of of Third Uncle by Brian Eno. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just one of those situations where like it sounded exactly like what the cover was promising. Like and and the whole record did. And it was just like this seamless you know co- combination of the the imagery on the album cover with the music.
0: It does sound exactly how it looks. And if you had a good sound system, Third Uncle by Bauhaus
1: was so amazing. Mhm. I mean, Um, and
0: better than the original, I got to say, sorry, you know,
1: but well, that that's one (laughs) of the I love bands and I love artists that are super fans themselves. And uh, I mean, Bauhaus's original music is incredible, but all of their covers are Mm -hmm. so great. And they whether it's, um, you know, T-Rex or Brian Eno or even David Bowie. Like, their covers are John Cale with Rose Garden Funeral of Sores. Uh, mm. their, their covers, uh, almost all are are better than the original. Like, um, they're so great. Well, they took all of these 70s glam classics, and there's, you know, just this kind of almost, like, amphetamine. Like, uh, mm. like they just turned it up. Like, so it's just... Faster and and more frenetic and more intense. Um, so yeah. intense,
0: yeah. Susie Sue did amazing covers too. Yes, yes, she did. No!
1: You know, in in my teens and into my early twenties, uh, like a lot of people, I really, really fell in love with uh, Von Oliver and 23 Envelope and the whole 4AD records aesthetic. Y- you know, it really occupied this space between commercial art and fine art. Um, that said, it kind of wore off for me. Like, I, I I don't like it the way that I did back then. It, it hasn't mm-hmm. really held up that well for me like I, I, I certainly still appreciate it but in a way it kind of seems pretty dated at this yeah. point uh, totally. but at around the same time you know in, in my teens you know I was a huge Smiths fan and uh, I Feel like even though it's much more minimal and straightforward i feel like the graphic design of the smith's catalog singles and albums like remains pretty timeless and it was hugely um inspirational to me and uh there are two women uh like i I think morrissey would choose the images but there were two women, one of them's name is Joe Slee and the other one's name is Karen Gao. I, I think mm-hmm. that's how G-O-U-G-H. And I believe they did like the layout and like the font choices and the those sleeves. They just taught me so much about how much uh, a choice of font and specifically really subtle uses of color can really change your emotional response to a photograph. Because, you know, almost all of those Smith's sleeves are Morrissey's favorite celebrities, like a, a lot of British soap opera stars and a, a lot of queer icons, you know, Candy Darling, Truman Capote, uh, et cetera. Et cetera. And they were almost always black and white photos that had just been very subtly tinted, and um, and you know very similar to like a lot of like Andy Warhol's art. Just yeah, the the, the use of color and um, font can can really uh, alter the way you feel about a photograph. I feel like there isn't a dud in in the whole smith's discography as far as those covers go and then even into morrissey's early solo career uh you know he kept working with that same team Mm -hmm. uh but then all the images became of him uh rather than and but they were still beautiful and i think it's really telling that he stopped working with those two women at some point in the 90s and (laughs) his uh his cover artwork like just went absolutely irrevocably down the tubes K- kind of kind of like in my opinion his music as well but um, <laughs> but i well, kind I, of a I,
0: universal I, thought at this point but
1: i but i definitely think those two women um deserve much more uh, attention and appreciation, um, because okay. I, I think it's the it speaks for itself that their contributions were were really important.
0: Well, I'll have to do an episode dedicated. So it's Joe Slee, J O S L E E, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Karen Karen, Gow. Karen
1: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. So Joe, it looks like Joe Slee is credited for doing the strange ways here he come, which yeah is a really weird cover
1: yeah that's uh richard davalos in on the that cover he co-starred with james dean in exit to eden, uh yeah exit to eden
0: ah i knew it was an actor yeah very cool and then it looks like um she designed the cover of his book as well peep Peephole wait what peopleism <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah that's a really hard book to get your hands on i think it it goes for three hundred to like five hundred dollars, uh, but yeah, it's it's a book of every single design wow. that she did with Morrissey.
0: That's awesome. Somebody send me that. Send us that book. We'll share it. <laughs> <laughs> um, great recommendation.
1: Um, I guess getting back to Bauhaus again. Um, so Daniel Ash from Bauhaus, you know, he created that cover for the sky's gone out. And he also, a, a painting of his is on the cover of their album mask. And, um, I don't think he did all of their covers, but I can remember, you know, buying their records and, and looking at the credits and seeing that he had done them and, you know, that, that really, it made me so excited. Uh, to think that you could be in a band and not only make the music, but also be allowed to make your own cover. Um, and I think I always thought like, wow, if I'm in a band, like that's what I want to do. And coincidentally, I, I did just design the cover uh, to the Ono No's new album. You know, I, I've always wanted to, I, and I don't know if this just sounds like I'm a big control freak or, but whatever I've, been involved in, whether it's like a painting or, um, or a record or throwing a club night, I've always wanted to be involved in all aspects of it. And, you know, when I first started throwing Fobang, what was so exciting about it was that I got to do so many things and, um, uh, from booking the bands to designing the posters and the flyers and uh designing the stage decorations to also uh writing wow. and starring in the stage shows and kind of <laughs> producing them and directing them uh and it, yeah for for me that was like a dream come true and and
0: wow. well you- you did a great job, and I would like to say that that's why it was consistent It's because you had your hand on all those things and it was your vision and
1: yeah. I mean I had I had a lot of help my uh yeah. obviously uh, my co-host and uh, co-creator Jackie Hell that goes without speaking or without saying but uh, my friend Rachel Rednick mm-hmm. uh, she helped me book so many fantastic bands. And um, I, I think uh, part of what really made Faux Bang work as far as the bands go is it was this kind of nice back and forth between, you know, there was a big, you know, punk revival and garage revival happening around that time. And there were just so many great bands of those genres, you know, whether it was the Spitz. But then there were also so many great, like, art punk bands, synth mm-hmm. punk bands, uh, really, really weird, you know, or, like, sort of new wave revival groups and, and a, a lot mm-hmm. of, like, queer, queer punk bands emerging at the time. And so, you know, it was, like, one week you, you know, might have the chromatics playing one of their first shows. And then the next week it would be the spits. And then the next week it would be the a frames. And then the week after that, the gossip playing, you know, their first show in a bar, uh, when they were 19 years old. And there was, it was such an incredible era in, in Northwest music. There were just Mm -hmm. all of these bands sprouting up almost daily it felt and it it made booking not only did it make it really easy but it was just such a joy and you know there were a lot of bands that even if they weren't necessarily great they were Mm -hmm. hugely entertaining for one reason or another yeah you know um
0: i was just remembering i saw uh the gossip at the sit and spin as well so that must have been you know and and like yeah you're right like that was such a magical time um, I mean, I,
1: I can remember uh, and this is too bad for the band that was actually booked, but uh, th- we were doing Fobang one night and the gossip had already played at Fobang once before and they'd gotten a lot of attention and they were opening for Sonic Youth uh, a wow. few months later and it at, at I think the Moore or the Paramount. and it just happened to be on a Thursday and they showed up at about 11 or 12 at night and um, and they were just like, that wasn't any fun. And they were like, can we play here tonight too? And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, at that point, I think everyone completely forgot about whatever other band <laughs> was playing where, that night. Where
0: was Sonic Youth playing? Do you remember?
1: I, I think it was at the Paramount.
0: Oh, right, okay. God, yeah, boring. Um Compared to phobang, my God. <laughs> uh,
1: so once again, my friend Rachel Rudnick and I had become really close right before Fobang happened. And she, <laughs> she was in a garage punk band at the time called Get Down Syndrome. Uh, I remember that. And uh she was just so inspiring and and had so many fantastic ideas and a wicked sense of humor, but she she was the one that said like Ursula should have a band. And um I had not tried to be in a band since high school. <laughs> I, I was I was in a couple of short-lived goth bands in Phoenix, Arizona. And, um, both times the general consensus was just, you can't sing. And, um, and that, <laughs> that really like crushed me. And I, I kind of like, you know, hid away the idea of ever being in a band again, even though I really, really mm-hmm. wanted to be. And, um, but, you know, drag really, really can free you and help you as far as doing things in public and on stage that you might never do uh, as yourself. And um, so it was, you know, just kind of like, if if Ursula is in a band and she sucks, like, oh, well, that's Ursula. That's not me. And um, so it really... <laughs> really gave me that extra layer of like armor that i needed and so rachel is the one that like she and her uh her friend steve that were in get down syndrome together um they became my drummer and my guitarist and then rachel knew about this really really cool guy named ross who was in a band called the cripples like (laughs) None of these bands could have these names. At oh this no! Point. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, they. I think Ross just happened to be at Phobang one night, and Rachel and I walked up and said, "Hey, do you want to be in Ursula and the Androids?" And he was like, "Yeah, sure, great." And so he became our keyboard player. And um, and then the the three of them, Rachel, Ross, and Steve, were also Jackie Hell's backing band. But with Jackie, uh, they were Jackie and the Control Tops, and they were kind mm-hmm. of like a swamp bluesy, like sleazy uh, blues band. Mm-hmm. And then with me, they were the androids, and it, it was like a, a poppy, new wavy synth synth group.
0: Can can people find uh, like footage of these performances anywhere? Or
1: there's not a lot out there. You know, this was. Probably, you know, half a decade to a decade before everyone had a camera mm-hmm. on them. And uh I mean, it's hard to really even remember, like, just how different things were as far as documentation. Like, we, we would be yeah. lucky if one person <laughs> we knew would show up with a video camera and <laughs> that person was usually... The am- amazing Tara Thomas, um, <laughs> who, I mean, Tara wore so many hats uh, at Aww. Fobang, like as a videographer, um, hairstylist, driver. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, she also played um, the incredible role of Jackie Hell's daughter, Debbie, Um <sighs> which, uh, you know, there were so many, like, devoted fans of the show, and they just loved it when Jackie and I would ju- would just pull out all the stops and be as raunchy and horrific and, <laughs> like, awful as possible. Like, nothing was too much. But for a lot of people, Debbie was too much. Like, <laughs> the I found that mask that Tara would wear as Debbie oh. at a... At- I found it at a garage sale for twenty five cents, and I've always said that was the, the best twenty five cents I ever spent in in my life. Like that mask just like horrifies people, like like didn't to their she, essence.
0: Did she do backup dancing for Peaches as Debbie?
1: And let me tell you, <laughs> Peaches was not a fan. I, know.
0: I love that story. I didn't realize that was the Debbie character. Okay. <laughs>
1: I don't think Peaches likes to be upstaged. No. And uh, <laughs> Debbie will upstage anyone and, and anything. She'll
0: come to your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> we love Tara. Hi, Tara. Oh Hi, my god. Tara. Oh my god. That's awesome. So then fast forward to I don't I don't mean to speed you along or anything, but I love that. I love that. Okay, so De- Debbie's, I mean, sorry, Tara was, is not in the Oh no, No's, but Ross kind of is in everything.
1: Yes, R- Ross is absolutely superhuman and so incredibly talented and inspiring and amazing to work with. And we've been in the Androids and the Ono oh, No's and Connie and the Precious Moments. Um Basically, I would never have had a, uh, a semi-career in music um, if not for Ross.
0: Oh, what's up, Ross? Shout out! I need a, I need like sound effects or something.
1: <laughs> Ross, yay, Ross! So tell.
0: was oh, delayed. Tell my listeners about Ononos because to me, that is, of course, I love the drag shows, but. So, there's something about the latex. uh, I wouldn't call it drag. I would call it. um, What would you call it? Uh,
1: I think we were calling it like space drag. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: Maybe like gimp drag a little, (laughs) (laughs) but.
1: It's, yeah, it's kind of like.
0: Dominant gimp. Sort of
1: (laughs) club kitty sent through like a black hole or something Mm. um uh so yeah i had i had been doing ursula and the androids for i think about five years and drag was starting to kind of wear on me it it had gone there was like this um downward progression where it went from my favorite thing in the world to one of my favorite things to do to then just seeming like a good job to then just feeling like a job and then finally just seeming like uh, just this responsibility or this, this thing I had to do it just the, the magic just wasn't there for me, but I still loved, loved singing and performing and uh, producing but I just didn't want to have to spend three hours getting into drag every time I, I did a performance. And um, and also, I, I was getting a little more serious about the music itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just wanted to do something where it could be more actually about the music and and still have a strong visual component to it. But something that I could get in into and out of um, in more like... 10 minutes Um, and uh, you know Ross and I just had such a similar vision and a similar love for synthesizers and um, mutant disco and uh, and then around that time we had become friends with uh, the lovely Tyler Bosch, who you've Aww. had on your show. Yes. Hi, Tyler. And, you know, we were all very similarly into really, really weird synth bands like Nervous Gender and uh, The Normal and Malaria. And uh, and we were all also uh, very, very into Yoko Ono. And somehow this idea came along to start a a synth punk Yoko Ono semi-tribute band. And um
0: but that does a bad
1: brain cover. And so yes, in in the beginning it was pretty much all covers, mostly Yoko. Screamers. But but we also did the Screamers, Bad Brains, The Misfits, um Latour um we did a pixies cover and then more and more though we just we were having so much fun but and all of a sudden we just really felt inspired to write and we just started writing more and more originals and you know over the course of about a decade the the covers and particularly the yoko covers pretty much all got weeded out and mm-hmm. Um, at this point, the majority of the songs that we play are originals that we, we do still do a couple of covers, like a Tones on Tail cover. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the band has just really morphed and evolved a lot and it's only taken us 14 years, but we're finally... Putting out our first full length record. All right. Uh, up up until that, up until this, like all we'd put out was a cassette and uh, like a burned CD. But uh, and Tyler moved on, and mm-hmm. um, and we we love him and we miss mm-hmm. him. And for about a year or two, we were so fortunate to work with the incredible Stacy Peck. Mm-hmm. As our drummer, and um she has played in uh such wonderful bands as Childbirth and Pony Time. Oh my god, I love childbirth. Telepathic Liberation Army. Yes. She's worked with uh Jen Champion and but Stacy has also moved on to other things. And so at this point, Ono oh No's are uh just Ross and I and um we're not really sure what that means as far as live performances go in the future. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is so strange right now anyway. Yeah. I don't even know if we'll have an album release show.
0: We'll tell the listeners how to at least hear your music if you, while you're figuring out the touring or uh, performing stuff. So it's coming out when-ish. <laughs> Do we know yet?
1: Uh, it's coming out in either late spring or early summer of 2022, uh, and it's being released, uh, by the, uh, incredible Clyde Peterson on his record label, Cruisin Records, and it'll be available on Bandcamp and it will be available on vinyl and, uh, yeah, I'm just. Really, really proud of this record and excited for people to hear it.
0: I can't wait to hear it. I saw when you were in process making the album cover, and I love it. And it just like you said about the Bauhaus, it looks like the music sounds. Good job.
1: Well, well, thank you very much. Is that fun
0: for you, like creating design for for to match music? Like.
1: Oh yeah, I absolutely it? love it. Yeah. You know?
0: looks great and i'm i'm also flipping through all the old flyers too and um i think you should do more of that sir i think you should do more music design if you can
1: Uh, i would love to thank you very much
0: So let me go to my list here really quick. I know it's been an hour, but we haven't told the O.C. story. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Are we allowed to or is there too much weird shit that we
1: can't? Well, let's see. So way back in, I think it was 2003, it might be 2004, uh, John Dwyer's pretend gay German industrial band Uh, Ziegenbach-Kopf played at Fobang at Rebar, and uh, it was an absolutely incredible night. Uh, Definitely in the top 10, if not top three Fobangs. And I think it was definitely the best one we ever did at Rebar. But uh, (laughs) the only lighting in all of Rebar... Was strobe lights. I think there were about 20 or 30 of them going off around the club. And we had like four or five fog machines going. So the entire club was just this like nebula of fog and strobe lights. Ziegenbach Kopf, you know, they were dressed in uh, see through mesh bikinis with. Leather engineer boots and leather daddy caps and aviator shades. And John Dwyer was somehow literally climbing the walls and the ceiling of rebar like Spider-Man. And, uh, uh, and it was, it was nuts and, uh, and so much fun. And then, and honestly, I can't even remember how we ended up booking them. But the next day we were saying goodbye to them as they were leaving to go play their next date. And, and John said to us like, Oh, like that was so much fun. You should come down and do a phobang in San Francisco on Halloween. And we were like, yeah, great. And so we agreed to do that. And John booked a venue in San Francisco and we all You know bought our plane tickets and got our hotel rooms and we were so excited and a couple days before the show John called me and evidently the club the venue had had been double booked for the night Mm -hmm. and they decided to go with the other booking so we didn't have a a, a venue to do the show in. But, you know, all the tickets had been bought and everything. And Uh, he, John was like, I'll make it work. Like, you know, come on down anyway. And so we did. And (laughs) John's solution was to try to throw this, (laughs) this like epic club night in his practice space. Oh my God. (laughs) um, You know, that would maybe hold... A dozen people oh. and um, several hundred people showed up um, and waited in line. And the the, the bill was Ursula and Ursula and the androids, Jackie Hell and the Control Tops, uh, the band Dynasty that eventually became Dynasty Handbag. And then our friends, the Charming Snakes, also mm-hmm. got added onto the bill at the last minute. And I can't remember if John was even going to play that night or not, but it became, as soon as we got there, pretty evident that this was not going to work. Um, There were like hundreds of people waiting outside in costume and (laughs) trying to get into this tiny practice space. And I know there was a lot of uh, LSD going around. Oh my God. Um, And there was no bar, but no one had been told to bring their own liquor either. So people were really upset about that. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) I know that the band Dynasty played and then the Charming Snakes came on and midway through their set, the cops showed up and shut the show down. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they left and... We started the show back up again and... Uh, As you do. Ursula and the androids tried to play and then the cops came back with <laughs> like like a dozen squad cars and they actually did start arresting people. Oh, and, no. um, uh, uh <laughs> And then it just completely disintegrated after that oh. and... Uh, Lacey from the Charming Snakes drove a bunch of us in their tour van mm-hmm. to this rave that someone told us about <laughs> that was in this bizarre secret gigantic space that was under the freeway in San Francisco that and it sounds was, right and it, it It was absolutely like just being in like Soylent Green or something. It was just this weird dystopian sci-fi space and uh but
0: Well, nobody got arrested in your in the group of the bands and everybody.
1: No, and I'm I'm surprised because one of our band members, who shall remain nameless, was actually hitting the police with his (laughs) keyboard and (laughs) and just kept plugging it back into the wall and, and trying to play anyway.
0: Oh my God. John, what are you doing? We love John. Thank you for letting me use your song. <laughs> but that's insane. And I mean, it sounds like an epic Halloween if I've ever heard one.
1: And the only other thing I remember about it was I woke up so hungover uh the next day and we decided to go either thrift shopping or record shopping and uh I felt like I was gonna die and I guzzled a bottle of Pepto-Bismol and Uh we got on the bus (laughs) we got on the bus (laughs) um I to go I think I think we were going to like Amoeba Records in in the hate and like two minutes after getting on the bus I uh I had to pull the string and and like (laughs) to to make the bus stop and I I leapt off the bus and projectile vomited that entire bottle of uh, Pepto Bismol over a a wall that was painted green and um, beautiful uh, and you know it was disgusting but it looked really great
0: (laughs) always an artist listeners (laughs) beautiful. Um I love that story even though it sounds also uh stressful. I just have a couple things left. I wanted to talk briefly about um, Connie and the Precious Moments.
1: Um, lovely, lovely Miss Merlot. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, Connie is kind of like the absolute opposite side of the coin to Ursula. Ursula was, you know, kind of like this combination of Susie Sue, Klaus Nomi, Ozzy Osbourne, Yoko Ono, Fat Gadget, just mm-hmm. basically... Abrasive and uh punk new wave, whereas Connie was all about Barbara Mandrell and Donna Fargo, Linda Evans, Barbara Streisand, the Pointer Sisters. Um, and there's definitely a lot of my mom in Connie, um, and okay. <laughs> and and my and my, my, my an, an aunt of mine as well but um, uh, there's a documentary from 1982 that was made by Nick Broomfield who would go on to make Kurt and Courtney and Biggie and Tupac and yeah. like the Heidi Fleiss Hollywood Madam mm-hmm. document documentary but the Chicken Ranch was actually his first documentary and he's a British documentarian that uh, went and spent six weeks living at the chicken ranch, uh, brothel in Pahrump, Nevada. And it's a, it's a very low key, very, in my opinion, not sensational. It's, it's just kind of like a day in the life or in this, in the case of the documentary, six weeks in the life of, of the women working at the chicken ranch and if you know if you're looking for a, a exciting, salacious, sexy documentary about sex workers, that's not it. <laughs> in, instead, it's I, I find it fascinating and in, in how boring it really is. And oh, uh, I love it. And you know the ladies working there are very much like house cats. They spend most of their time just grooming and lounging <laughs> and you know waiting for the clientele to show up but um but connie is one of the ladies in the documentary and um and she's most notable well first of all for her extremely tight auburn perm um but uh also (laughs) curls but also for her uh sort of melancholy side/ slash really angry demeanor and um, <laughs> and she kind of charms you and breaks your heart at the same time and um, no thank you for some for some reason, I decided to start performing as this real person from this documentary um, wow. as a drag persona. And I started out by hosting karaoke as Connie at the Crescent and Foxes. And once again, through the help of some lovely friends, Mm -hmm. Connie got her own band, uh, Ah. The Precious Moments. (laughs) You might be asking (laughs) yourself... music like this before. What? What is it? Well, you know what? There's never been music like this before. We've created our own genre. The Precious Moments sound... They have their own genre known as softtronics, which is <laughs> electronica for the rest of us or electronica with all the edges cut off and um, uh, it's softronics. very inspired by... Giorgio Moroder meets uh, smooth jazz with a little like new age healing music mixed in and, um, uh,
0: but a tiny bit of like feminism from the seventies.
1: Sure. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. Is is that second wave or or feminism 2.5? Maybe. And it, it also allows Connie to, you know, explore her love of poetry and, um, Affirmations and
0: oh, the the tight wig, the the tinted glasses, the seventies vibes. I mean, it's all like a gauzy dream of a band. I love it so much. And Aww. then uh, Renee on keys and Joyce on the rainstick, right?
1: Rainstick, triangle, uh, Glockenspiel. Kush. Um, uh, oh, did you do? Of course. Or did you or don't? Did you
0: or don't? All the uh, rejected percussionist. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Joyce. I'm really sorry, folks. Joyce just, you know, she hasn't been attending rehearsals. She's a single mother. She has three children. She's working two jobs. She's going to college. But but Joyce, this is inexcusable. I told you this wouldn't happen. Folks, I'm really sorry. She just doesn't know that song. She just does not know it.
0: Did I party? I'm sorry. I love all the personas. They're all perfect. I've seen Connie play many times, and it's always a great time. So, listeners, if you get the chance, don't uh, don't regret it. You'll regret it for the rest of your life. Without any further ado, let's
1: party. What
0: do you want people to know?
1: Uh, be on the lookout for the Oh No No's self-titled album in, once again, vaguely late spring or early summer of this year. And uh, for the, I think, fourth year in a row, except for 2020, uh, I'm going to be co-curating uh, an art show at the Steve Gilbert studio here oh. in Seattle for in June for pride. Um, and it's a group show and it's always really, really fun. And I'm looking forward to, um, to curating that.
0: Oh, awesome. Thank you. Two things to look forward to. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much, Marcus, for doing this. I feel like we just scratched the surface. Like we could talk about this stuff forever, but
1: well, thank you so much, Clarita. I really appreciate it. Oh, of
0: course. Have a great night. Bye. And
1: have a great night. I Bye-bye. homage to her, but also to all of you out there that have ever lost anyone that you truly
0: loved. I still can't believe
1: you're gone. I still can't believe you're gone. I loved it when you curved my <laughs> hair. I can't believe you're not sitting there, JJ, I love you the most, I swear. You need to hear half your breath. (laughs) You need to hear half your breath. (laughs) JJ, you were always there with a hug. Or we'd go shopping at the fashion bug. On our nights off, we'd always drink whiskey from a jug. Or we'd have a little playful cat fight and roll around on a rug. JJ. uh, anything to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Every single-